well. Hope everybody's got something fun p- planned for a long weekend. Um, obviously, Memorial Weekend. Um, so I, I just want to do this this quick um, call, I guess, this quick chat. Um, obviously, I threw it on the calendar. We had a slight chance that we were going to get a verdict today, um, but that's not the case. So uh, jury's going to come back on Tuesday to deliberate further, and we'll see. I mean, I, I would imagine we'll get a verdict on Tuesday. Uh, you never know, but, um, you know, it is just a false statement case. So I, I'd be surprised if it went further uh, than Tuesday. So um, I was looking through my notes. Obviously, you know, I was at the trial for three days. Um, I took a ton of notes, especially on, on one of the days when I didn't live tweet. Um, so there, there was just a couple of points I wanted to clean up on Jared Novick. And then obviously I want to get into... Uh, kind of the fireworks that, that happen as they wrap things up a little bit. So um, on Jared Novick, uh, I always already went through the, um, the companies already, so I'm not going to do that again. A um, couple, couple points I did want to hit. So Novick describes being extremely uncomfortable when Joffe sent over this list of Trump associates, basically tasking him to uh, hunt for dirt on Trump and some of his associates. And this list of Trump associates, he, he describes as five to seven individuals relating to Trump, and he gave three names. So the three names that we have are Carter Page, Sergey Milian, and Richard Burt. And the only reason we didn't get the other names is because these three are apparently the only ones that are related in some fashion to the alpha allegations. Now, it would have been really nice to actually get in there and see the evidence. Carter Page uh, apparently had some sort of contact with somebody from Alpha. Richard Burt, um, I think, has a relationship with the, on the board. Sergey Milian, uh, he was mentioned, and there was no details provided on why Sergey Milian was in this tr- list of Trump associates. But because his name was actually mentioned at the trial, I think we can assume that it is because there was an alpha-related allegation made for Sergey Milian, And that becomes really important because, as it relates to Sergey, there actually is an allegation that we're aware of. Um, you know, there was an a allegation out there that was passed to the FBI by Christopher Steele to Bruce Orr on September 23rd, just a couple days after Sussman. Um, and this allegation was that Sergey Milian had used this alpha server in some fashion uh, just a couple weeks prior. So it, it is directly tying into uh, the narrative. Um, so his name was mentioned. We didn't get the context, but I think it's safe to assume it, it's something related to those allegations. Um, so I wanted to hit that point real quick. Let's see here. A couple other points. Uh, we got a few names listed, obviously. So uh, Zach Canner was one that I'm actually familiar with because I, when I was doing a deep dive months ago, I know he's a Block 3 guy. And Block 3 is this company that kind of ties in with Dino Capital, which is another one of Rodney Joffe's entities. So um, if that's confusing, that's actually going to be one of my first uh, articles that I write on my Substack, which is I plan on... Uh, launching this weekend. So I'm going to write an article and just kind of talk about all the different companies and all different people that are tied into them. But 
uh, Zach Canner's a name that popped up as the CTO of Packet Forensics. So that was pretty interesting to me. Um, and then I, I started this one in my notes. So in describing the capabilities of Packet Forensics, Jared Novick from the stand actually said that they have internet sensors deployed around the world. And my, my ears picked, perked up around that because we have allegations and we have some knowledge and, and there's you know, a little bit of intuition behind it that Rodney Joffe has a role in the attribution of the DNC hacks to Russia. And so this line, I mean, internet sensors around the world uh, in describing the capabilities of pack of forensics probably ties in with that. And another piece that we actually got from Jared Novick in, in his testimony was that Russia, or excuse me, that Rodney Joffe worked on Russia-related cyber matters for the FBI. Now, they didn't go and explicitly ask about the DNC hack, but I, you know, I don't think it's outlandish at all that he was asked or tasked by the FBI in some capacity to actually do work on the DNC hack. Now, that becomes really interesting because we already know that Georgia Tech researchers in close proximity and close relationship with Rodney Joffe, uh, namely Manos and Tanakakis, uh, David Dagan, um, which are involved in these alpha allegations, we know that they actually provided a body of work to Robert Mueller, Special Counsel Mueller. And that included um, analysis of APT-28 and APT-29. Now that's Fancy Bear and that's Cozy Bear. Those are two entities of Russia that supposedly hacked the DNC. They also provided a white paper on the DNC hack attribution. And we also have a piece that they analyzed cryptocurrency transactions, which um, actually would seem to tie into the GRU and how they hacked the DNC. There's a little piece of it where they made some uh, purchases with cryptocurrency. So I think that's where that might tie in. Um, so that, that was pretty interesting. Um, that, that, that could be a foreshadowing of what might come with, with Joffe. Uh, let's see. Was there anything else I had no, no Uh, so yes, a couple other quick points here. Uh, as it relates to these five to seven names that are affiliated with Trump, uh, this list of Trump associates from Joffe had their addresses, their spouse, uh, names, all their addresses, all the email addresses, uh, basically like a whole deep dive of public and non-public information. Uh, so that, you know, that's not good. Um, and this directive in, in their search basically was twofold. To go wide and then to go deep. So by wide, I mean, you know, one of the, one of the queries that they had was anything alpha related. Now, that's not all alpha bank. I mean, I'm, they searched alpha wide open. And anything that had alpha in the name went into a list. And then they went through and filtered out what was relevant what was not. And then the second directive was to go deep. So by that, that's a relationship discovery analysis. And they took people like, you know, a Trump associates or their wives. And then they went through and they went, you know, I don't even know how many layers, however, however many they could to define all the different relationships they might have interacted with uh, to the most of their capability and power, which is just a scary thing. Because, you know, I tell you what, Everyone on this chat has probably interacted with a Russian within the last two or three weeks, whether you actually knew it or not. Um, you know, there's somebody on Twitter that liked to post something like that. I mean, 
that's the kind of like stuff they were actually searching for. Um, so that, that's a, obviously a very scary thing. And uh, Novik and the team actually generated a code name for this project and, and searching for this on behalf of Rodney. And they called it Crimson Rhino. So keep that, keep that in mind. There is a report that they generated that was not introduced into the body of evidence. It, I believe they were going to, and they, they, just, they decided not to. Uh, let's see here. I thought this was pretty interesting. I, I didn't hear about this before. Uh, Novik from the witness stand described a blow-up between Paul Dixie and Rodney Joffe, which apparently split a lot of people between the, the two teams. He didn't describe what actually caused it, but that, that's something I did not know. Um, as far as I was aware, Dixie and, and Joffe remained close. They, I know they, their relationship goes back to the 1990s and you know, the formation of the Internet at the time, but they were also both involved in direct marketing companies. So um, they had a long-standing relationship, and I don't know when that blow-up really occurred or, or what caused it, but that, that was pretty interesting. That was new to me. Uh, let's see. Yeah, and then obviously he went through all the different companies and stuff, and I, I talked about that on last chat. So I won't do that, and I'm going to write an article anyway. So uh, let's see. Yeah, other than that, guys, I mean, I just wanted to touch on the big story, and I think this was Wednesday that I was, I was still there, and it was the flash drive. So this came out of nowhere, but apparently – you know, they pulled up this receipt just out of the blue in the middle of their, their examination. And Michael Sussman, like, walked around the corner. I, I'm not kidding. They had a map up there, and it was walking distance. It was, like, two minutes away around one corner, and he was there. He went to Staples, and he bought flash drives. And I believe it was September 13th that he bought them. And then the data logs cut off on the 14th. So, basically, they threw the data on these flash drives. And then he walked him over to the FBI. And what becomes really interesting is that uh, Sussman took down that receipt and he billed it to the Clinton campaign. And Hillary Clinton paid for the flash drives that contained the data related to Alpha Bank allegations that uh, went to the FBI. She paid for it. So that, that's pretty amazing. I mean, if you're trying to try a case and you're, you know, the, the whole argument about the case centers on whether or not he represented a client or more, you know, with more certainty, whether he represented the Hillary Clinton campaign, Hillary paid for the flash drives that he brought. I mean, you can't get, can't get any more clear than that. So I thought that was a really powerful piece of testimony. A lot of people said they should have maybe opened up the trial with that, uh, which, which might've been good, but it, it actually was really powerful at the end of the trial too, because it was like, it felt like the cherry on top. Right. I mean, they they might have struggled a little bit at, at the start of the trial, but they did. I thought the prosecution was really strong while I was out there and they were just chugging along. And you thought, well, you know, case is going really well. And then they pulled this flash drive story out. And it's like, wait a minute. I mean, that's it just was really powerful to have something, you know, still in the quiver that they came out late in the trial, you know, slam that home. And I thought that was that was really, really good. Um so anyway, guys, um, see, we have a bunch of people here going to invite a few people. I mean, if you guys have any thoughts or, or anything you want to share, I'd love to hear from you guys. Oops. 
Hey, King. How's it going? Hey, King. I'm here. I'm sorry. I had my mic on mute. Uh, it, it was oh. an interesting trial. Uh, I envy you being there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a it was an amazing amazing experience for me. I uh, I'm really happy I went. I really enjoyed it. Uh, for those of us who have been following it, that there were two pieces of uh, really new new information or old information repackaged to become obvious what was going on. One was the, uh, like you just said, the uh, staples receipt for the thumb drives. That was awesome. The other was uh, Rodney Jaffe's double or triple entree into the FBI with his sketchy uh, DNS data. Yeah, I mean, it's not looking good for Joffe, is it? I mean, you can see how his trial might go. That That's going to be pretty amazing. I, I think I tweeted earlier today that, uh, in hindsight, based on what we heard, uh, Sussman could have indicted Joffe with Sussman uh, on a conspiracy charge. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess we, we could still see that, right? It... Uh, He's going to have to add to it now. I don't think he can base it solely on uh, the uh, thumb drives and the uh, uh, the triple entrees into the FBI. He's going to have to bring in some more people. Yeah. I mean, there is kind of the anecdote. I don't know if it came up in trial that Sussman actually did work on the on the white paper itself. So maybe that's a, a little piece of something bigger. Well, maybe something will flip. Uh, That'd be nice. They have to convict him first, though. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I was there. Obviously, I went in the courtroom one of the days. The other two days, I was in the media room. But the day I was in the media, or excuse me, when, when I was in the courtroom, I made a conscious effort to really look at the jury, especially during the arguments, and, and really try to analyze you know, their faces and what they were thinking. And I, I was really impressed with them. I mean, they were taking notes. Um, they were very attentive. You know, the only time they, they really got bored was on a certain cross-examination by the defense, which, you know, was really duplicative of what the defense had, had cross-examined somebody else uh, the day before. So, it, like, it was understandable that they were bored because it wasn't new information. It's not like the def- I'm not even saying the defense did a bad job. It was just same information. So, I don't know. I mean... You know, everybody's making a big deal about the D.C. jury thing, but uh, and that's true. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a definite conviction, but I, I don't see an acquittal. I, I can see a hung jury, um, but I, just, just the demeanor of some of the jurors, I think, you know, they're they're perking up at the right moments for the prosecution, is what I saw. So, um, throughout my career, it's been a constant. Uh, note of uh, surprise and enjoyment that uh, every jury I tried a case to took it took their job seriously. Uh, they tried to be fair. 
They tried to listen to both sides. They tried to hear the evidence and do as the judge instructed. It's, it's impressive to sit through a jury trial and, and keep your eye on the jury. They are attentive. They, ta- they, they, they believe that they're there to uh, be the ultimate decider of the case, which they are. Anybody listening, if you ever get a chance to be on a jury, don't, don't find an excuse not to do it. It's your civic duty, and you'll be uh, more impressed at, uh, because of the experience with our system of justice. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, do you have any other thoughts on the last on what's developed over the last couple of days at all, or you might take a few questions here? Uh, I'd like to take questions. I, you know, okay. I, I don't have much more to say. I'm, just, you know, I'm when 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 you sit through a stressful trial, uh, as we all have been watching it from afar. Uh, once the jury goes out, it's it's time to have a stiff drink and uh, just be patient and wait because <laughs> you never know what they're going to do. I mean, how about for like a false statement case? I mean, would you be surprised if deliberations went further than Tuesday or would you expect a verdict on Tuesday? You, you, uh, as experienced as I am, I've never been able to read a jury. <laughs> and, I, and so I, I wasn't there to even look at them. So I, I can't say. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, hey jh i see you have your hand up what's up man hey uh i guess i just have a quick question i know an acquittal, an acquittal. cannot be uh appealed um but i think i if i'm not mistaken there's also been cases where there's been acquittals but a trial for some reason or another has been found to be defective and uh am i correct in saying that a an acquittal or or a trial can be thrown out if uh, if the trial is found to be defective, um, for instance, that's, maybe something like a bad jury instruction. Yeah, that that's called a mistrial, gotcha. where yeah. uh, where an error, where, where the uh, defendant gets convicted, uh, and then either the trial judge or uh, court on appeal decides that there was major error in uh, in. It, it could be many things. It could be an improper questioning by the prosecution. It could be uh, defective jury instructions that misstate the law. It could be other things that happened during the trial that unfairly prejudiced the defendant. Uh, a mistrial would then be uh, ordered and it goes back to the trial court uh, for a new trial, uh, the prosecution has the option of uh, either trying them a second time or uh, saying, you know, we did our best and we choose not to retry this case. Can that only happen post-verdict uh, in the case of a conviction or can that also happen in the case of an acquittal? It can happen in the middle of the trial. Uh, yeah, but, you know, I guess I, I'm thinking like specifically post-verdict. Well, yeah. No, and if if the verdict is acquittal, then that's the end of it. 
So even if the trial is found to be defective, you can't right. you can call no, them as post acquittal. No, that would be double jeopardy. Okay. Uh, let's see. Hey, Will, do you have anything you want to say? We'll come back to you. Uh, General Logos, what's up? Hey, what's up, man? Th uh, thanks again for having me. Um, so kind of a, you know, a quick question here is, depending on what uh, the outcome is going to be on Tuesday, um, what do we think is next for Dorham? Um, do you think um, that depending on that outcome, um, it he could go, uh, you know, harder and, and, and maybe bring some more cases? Or do you think, um, you know, if it doesn't go his way, he might just kind of be like, well, you know, I, I guess I'm just kind of curious, where do you guys think things are going to go? And will the outcome of this case? Um, Are you um, going to walk for a while? Uh, I'm going back and forth. Okay. And um, and do we think that anything that happened during this case um, might um, make uh, him go, you know, hey, let's let's take a look at this now, or let's take a look at this now, regardless of, of the outcome or the verdict. Um. I definitely see Durham doing a lot more. So, um, you know, I go back and forth. So if I change my mind here in a couple of months, I mean, don't, don't call me on it too bad. But, um, you know, I guess early on, I, I was somebody that was really on board with more indictments or indictments with the FBI and, you know, some of these characters. And then I've moved away from that over the past few weeks. And sitting through the trial and listening to the FBI agents testify and, kind of just kind of the vibe and, and how everything's kind of laid out. I picture more indictments coming. Now I still don't know if there's going to be indictments at the FBI or not, but listen to the FBI agents say the FBI leadership told me to do it. The FBI leadership said, don't go interview this person. And especially, I mean, there's a specific text, I think from, well, I can't remember. I have it in my notes, but one of the agents was like, in this text message, they said, we are going to interview David Dagan. And obviously there's a lot more discussion about it. But this text was explicit. It says, we are going to interview David Dagan. And then, you know, in the trial, they ask them, like, okay, this text says this. Why didn't you go interview them? And they said, the FBI headquarters told me not to. And, and what's amazing is that there's so many descriptions of it being the, most, the next logical step. And, and everything else we've seen. Um, so that puts the FBI leadership in the crosshairs. And, you know, I think King even kind of mentioned this earlier, and I think I mentioned it a couple days ago myself. You know, we talked a lot about the potential of there being two conspiracies. If, if Durham's going to do anything with the FBI, we've talked about it being two conspiracies. One is going to be around the Clinton characters, you know, Joffe, you know, people like that perhaps. And then we always thought, you know, well, the second conspiracy that might relate to the FBI, if it happens, would be like January 2017 onward, where their case fell apart. You know, they, they didn't have probable cause. They didn't have evidence that was, um, you know, supportive of continuing an investigation. 
And we always thought that would be the starting point. But I have to tell you, I mean, we have all these, these emails and everything in October, you know, September, October, and it feels different now. And to hear that the FBI leadership was taking uh, such an interest in these allegations and they were so involved in the direction of this, this case, this alpha-related case, I am going to open the door or leave open the door of the possibility of this being one conspiracy. And we might find that there are ties between, you know, the private cell, whether it's Joffe or the Clinton campaign and the FBI agents. And, you know, I'll, I'll throw this out there. I mean, I have this FOIA document um, or this FOIA response telling me there are hundreds of communications between Hillary Clinton herself, Jake Sullivan, Jennifer Palmieri, Robbie Mook, and President Obama or his chief of staff or Susan Rice in the heart of the election season. Hundreds, hundreds of communications. And it's like, okay, are they talking about the election? Maybe. I mean, are they, is it small talk? Are they getting advice about the election? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But if we get one email that says anything, about any steel dossier allegations or any Alpha Bank stuff, I mean, it's going to blow this thing wide open. I, I just, you know, it, it, it feels like this is still getting bigger. It doesn't feel like Durham's about done. I think Durham has a lot more that he's going to do, and we'll just have to see. King, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, just keep in mind that if, if, all Durham opens up lawyers. the possibility of proving a conspiracy for the pre-election conduct of the FBI. He's going to be met with the defense that, well, we, we had to downplay whatever we were doing because we didn't want to impact the election. So that's why the investigation went on so long. That's why it was so low-key. That's why we relied mainly on confidential human sources, talking to people like Papadopoulos and Carter Page. Uh, we didn't want to go out and interview third-party witnesses for fear that word about our investigation would leak out and affect the election. That's going to be their story. Yeah, and... I mean, we saw the difficulty that Durham had in this this case where he's trying to prosecute Sussman on a simple false statement. And, you know, the, the witnesses he has to bring on are FBI agents that are under investigation themselves. And, you know, the defense is ripping them apart about the decisions that they made. And that's going to be, you know, the difficulty that Durham's just going to have, uh, you know, in any case that he brings from here on is it's going to be, um, you know, kind of the, it's, there's always going to be some of that in any case that Durham brings, I think, from here on out. A, a, a critical to any case like that would be evidence that somebody inside the FBI was feeding his fellow agents with uh, false or misleading information. That is, if, if they knew, for example, that Jaffe was wearing several hats to 
corroborate his own work. They knew that and concealed it, but helped him do it. That you know, you can drag people like that into a conspiracy charge. Uh, as far as the higher ups are concerned, they it's it until they became more active uh, in the pa- in the paper trail, which I I would point to what they did with uh, General Flynn, followed by that meeting in March with the DOJ. Uh, it it would be tough to make a case against them after the election. However, uh, it things became hot for them and uh, you have Comey and McCabe actively pursuing a phony investigation. Hey guys. Hey Will, what's up? Oh, thank you. Uh, Can you explain real quick just the the white paper uh, and how it, you know, relates to the the case? I mean, uh, I know it's a government document of some sort. Uh, Isn't that correct? Yeah, so the white paper was prepared by the Alpha, you know, Georgia Tech Sussman researchers. Um, so there's a, there's a couple different white papers. The first white paper, which Sussman actually contributed to, is more like a Wikipedia-type search. It's background information on the oligarchs that run or own Alpha Bank and things of that nature. So um, to that extent, it's mostly public source information. Then there's other white papers, which are much more, there's a technical analysis, which breaks down these data logs that are, are provided and crafts this narrative of the secret communications channel between Trump and Putin. Got it, okay. And uh, thank you, King, for, your, you know, for answering these uh, questions. Um, you know, regarding trials, attorneys, um, it's fascinating. Uh, you're excellent. And I wanted to know, cause you led into the fact that some of the ex, uh, the, you know, the, some of the FBI agents might be a little, uh, uh, bent. Um, cause that's what I was, uh, assuming, you know, during the trial because they were so unhelpful to, to Durham. Is that where you're, you know, where are you going? Uh, no, I, I'm not surprised that they were unhelpful. They, they have been under a microscope since Horowitz's examination and they are naturally defensive about everything that went on. Uh, probably for very good reason because their hand their fingerprints are on all of the bad stuff that the FBI did uh, Durham it appears Durham is not going after them right now uh, he's probably after the higher ups uh, although I was a little surprised about pre-stop he, he, of all the witnesses he would have been the one I would say would be the most likely to be in Durham's crosshairs. Uh, maybe that's still a possibility, but uh, uh, if Durham is going after FBI, it's going to be higher ups plus those who had direct involvement 
in testimony to Congress, te- uh, interviews with the Mueller team, and false representations to uh, the FISA court. Okay. So we're talking, you know, Weissman maybe wrapped up into this, possibly. No idea. Hmm. Okay. Um, and then, of course, what's what does Strzok's text from August, what, 8th, 2016, saying the White House is running this? Yeah, you're at, that's something you, like that. You're, yeah, you're asking me if... Um, if uh, Obama is in the crosshairs, I doubt it. That, no, that would... not, not Obama, but, you know, just, just some, maybe some of his underlings and the staff and, um, you know, Rice uh, particularly or Susan Power or Samantha Power, you know, somebody, one of their, one of their goons um, that would be pulling off some of this, you know, undercover, uh, I mean, under, underhanded, nefarious, uh, you know, election manipulation. Not without two or three really strong whistleblowers. Okay. Um, yeah, because well, you've got all their testimony, you know, that, that came out that that said that, you know, there was no evidence of, of you know, collusion, conspiracy, or, or uh, what, whatever Cash Patel said, the three C's, um, or coordination, you know. So, okay. That's uh, good to know. Because uh, I, yeah, I don't think the FBI is going; it should be let off the hook on, on any of this because they were, you know, they were terrible. So, uh, thanks very much, guys. Have a good weekend. Yeah, thank you. Have a nice weekend. Yeah, ex- excellent work again, um, Undead and and thank King you. and and everyone. Um, it's, you, you guys are uh, terrific. It's it's amazing we have this, you know, ability to chat like this. I love it. <laughs> I'm glad. Thank you. That, I mean, that's the whole goal is kind of, kind of share the information that we have and bring awareness to it. So, uh, let's see who else we got. Uh, Savant Marine, what's up, man? Gentlemen, thank you so much. What a what a. Uh, I'll just mirror the other caller. What a great, great information. My question centers around uh, two points. Um, one, can Garland shut off the money if Durham wants to keep going? Doesn't he have to go back to Garland to get the money? Who's going to give him the money to keep doing it? And my other question centered around that is it seemed that, that if they went scorched earth, kind of like Mueller and, and Wiseman did, that they'd probably get better results. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find a especially in law enforcement and working law enforcement, I'm having a hard try- time understanding this concept of why they're not doing this and why they've not kind of, I'm not saying return the favor, but get to the meat of the, the matter. You know what I mean? And I'll let you guys talk. Thanks. Yeah. Thank, thanks for the question. So that's the point. Number one, yes. Attorney General Garland could shut off the money. He could fire Durham outright. Um, but I, I don't see that happening, especially now after Durham has, has gotten a couple indictments and there are strong indications of a conspiracy. And you actually see some coverage and left-leaning outlets now about the trial and about what everything else is going on. So, I mean, the political capital of getting rid of Durham right now would just be too immense, especially 
you know, we're looking at midterms in another five or six months. Like it's election season. Uh, they don't, you know, especially the Biden administration, they don't need anything else uh, to weigh down their poll numbers right now. So any hint that he is impeding Durham's work, it's just going to cause a, a nightmare for them. So I don't, I don't really see that happening anymore. Um, as to uh, your other question, um, why doesn't he go scorched earth? Uh, I mean, that's a good question. I, you know, I think it's it's Durham's, you know, modus operandi where he goes, you know, for every detail he can get, and he's going to have the strongest case possible when he goes to trial. And I, you know, I don't know if King has other thoughts on that. I, you know, some scorchers would be good to create some pressure on some people and maybe get a few more people to flip that way. Uh, but, you know, collecting evidence, if he feels like, you know, he can pull more evidence out of the FBI or he can pull more subpoenas and get some more documents and have a more complete case. I mean, the, the real issue is, and, and hopefully King will chime in, once you indict somebody, your ability to collect additional evidence is really limited. And, you know, that's a big problem when you're trying to pursue a case like this where you don't have necessarily a whole lot of evidence or it's so wide ranging, you know, you don't know what you might need to go find in a few more months. Like this Alpha case was always thought to be a relatively small component of Russiagate. And now it's, you know, shown to be a pretty massive operation that they had going. And the people that it's led to, like Karamitis and his role at DARPA and things like that, I mean, if you indicted somebody, you know, nine or ten months ago, your ability to collect evidence would be limited. And, you know, you might find something out where uh, you want to go get evidence and you're going to be impeded to some extent, at least, um, you know, presumably if it is a new charge, you can still collect some evidence. But um, you know, it does limit you a little bit. So, King, I don't know if you want to jump in. Yeah, I'd be happy to. The, on the uh, first question, uh, Garland, A.G. Garland has approved uh, Durham's budget for this fiscal year, which is enough for him to do the Sussman trial and presumably the Danchenko's trial, which is coming up uh, later this year. Beyond that, I don't know whether Durham has enough resources to go after the big guys, as we've discussed, uh, or whether he's going to have to go out, go look for more money. Uh, I, I seriously doubt politically that Durham could shut him off or fire him before the midterms. After the midterm. Uh, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, he may, he may decide that it's time to for Durham to finish his report and close up shop. We'll just have to wait and see. On the other issue, uh, a lot of the more aggressive law enforcement uh, procedures that the Mueller team used, in fact, most of them more aggressive stuff, you don't see a lot in ordinary white-collar white collar, uh, investigations, uh, criminal investigations. Uh, that Those are the, 
like a wiretap or a search warrant. Uh, those you see more often when a crime is ongoing. Uh, there is there are lives or property at stake. You know, people stand to lose a lot of money uh, or their livelihood or their lives. So the more aggressive uh, law enforcement uh, tools can be and are often used to speed up your investigation. Durham came in, though, well after the conduct that he's investigating uh, was over. So uh, it, it would be surprising to me that a wiretap or a search warrant, for example, would really gain him much uh, because if somebody's going to toss evidence, they'd have already done it by the time he got appointed. So he's, he's taking the path of a, what I call a traditional white collar prosecutor and using his grand jury subpoenas, uh, getting documents from all the government agencies, interviewing and called interviewing scores of witnesses and calling them to the grand jury. That's the way it, it's plotting and it takes a while, but that's the way uh, good, well-respected prosecutors work in cases like this. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank you. Uh, let's see here. Uh, let's go to Eric. What's up? Undead, great job, man. Give us a sense for, and I'm watching the, the media cover the Depp case in detail, right, every day. What's going on in the media room? You're there a couple days. I know you, yep. you departed, but give me a sense for, and I thought the New York Times reporter did a decent job of the play-by-play, yep. yep. but what's going on with the media? And at what point do they have to pick this up and, and, and actually provide context as to – what's happening here and what happened? Yeah. So that, that's a great question. To add to um, that, just a little bit, I'm curious uh, what reactions were in the media room too. Sure. Okay. Uh, so there's like 25 or 26 people in the media room uh, from every major outlet and, you know, a lot of others too. And yeah, I mean, at what point do they start covering it? I mean, at least for the trial, I think, there, there's a pretty significant size or quantity of articles out there now, which is good. Um, and the question is, you know, once this verdict comes in, does it lead to more coverage or does it not? Now, obviously, as compared to like a Mueller trial, when they tried, you know, somebody related to Trump for matters unrelated to Russia collusion, I mean, media coverage was relentless. And you know, 24-7, it was, we got him now, or, you know, Manafort's going to have to cut a deal. He's going to have to give up Trump. 24-7, right? We're obviously not getting that level of coverage. But, yeah, at some point, at some point, there is going to be a watershed moment where it does blow up into that level of coverage. I don't know when it is, but that day is coming. And... You know, part of the issue is that all these networks have at least one reporter that was talking to Fusion GPS. And that's where all those stories came from to begin with. And as it turns out, 
you know, when they had Adam Schiff on their show saying he's seen evidence of Russia collusion, apparently, you know, he was getting information from Fusion GPS too. We have at least one email indicating that for, in July 2016. Um, so... I don't know. I, I, there will be a watershed moment of coverage. It might take a conspiracy charge to do it. Um, maybe when Joffe gets indicted, maybe that starts getting the momentum going. Obviously, Igor Danchenko should be much more significant, but I, I don't know if that'll be the moment. Um, you know, I, I, I do get a little bit more, you know, as I, I, I don't know how to describe it. I guess, you know, I, I get a few more DMs in my box these days. I do get some more media type requests where they're, they're poking around some stuff. They're, they want to get some answers to a few things. So that's good. That's encouraging. Um, I think there are going to be some productions of t- trying to tell the Russiagate story. Uh, I'm aware of some stuff in motion. So that's, that's going to be good. Um, and then as to the, the question of the media room itself, I mean... It's so hard to describe, guys. I mean, there's a lot of a lot more noise than I thought there would be. I mean, there's audible reactions. Nobody was withholding their reactions to stuff. People were laughing, um, <laughs> laughing at some of the stuff that was said, which is, you know, they're pointing out how ridiculous some of the stuff. So, like the flash drive thing. And I'm not doing a well good job with this explanation, so I apologize, but. The flash drive thing. I mean, that blew up in the media, and everybody was in shock, audibly gasped. Everybody was leaning up, and you can just hear the thunder of keyboards and you know pounding on their phones trying to get tweets and stuff out because everybody understood what that meant. And there was a few moments like that. And I have a sense in the media room that there are some people that don't get it. And that was like maybe 20 to 25% of the room where they just don't get it. You know, somebody in that room was just totally against it. Like I, I could just tell she was, she was just not with it. And she was actually talking about Manafort at one point. It was just insane stuff. And then there's a few guys in there um, that are just like teasing some of the stuff that the defense was coming up with, which was just ridiculous. But then, you know, you have Hosenball in there, Mark Hosenball, and he's in some of the emails with Fusion GPS. He was mentioned in the trial multiple times. And that's where it became really embarrassing because, like, there's this email from Fusion GPS to Hosenball introduced. And everybody, like, looked at Hosenball at the same time. And uh, somebody, like, cracked the joke, like, you know, Hosenball, you're going to have to answer questions or whatever. And everybody laughed at Hosenball. And then, like, it was like a couple hours later, we come back from break and like out of the blue Hosenball just offers this weird explanation of, um, you know, the emails or whatever, like, like he didn't know or, or something like that. And then like, there's a couple other moments with Hosenball in there and the Hosenball got up, you know, when his email was introduced at one point and he got up and he actually walked over the TV to take a closer look. Like it's so like, it's awkward. It's like, dude, that, you know, Hosenball is the story right now. He's the one you should be writing about. And I don't know, man. I don't know when that watershed moment will be that blows us up into a story that you know commands that level of attention. I've always said this. 
and I, I think people get annoyed with it, but if, you know, 40% of the country knew what a few hundred of us know, this would be the number one political story right now because it's, you just can't hide from it. Once you get into the minutia of the, the story, you know, it's, it's damning. It's compelling. It's clear that there is a conspiracy in there. And, you know, more and more, it's likely that that conspiracy is going to be charged. And we're going to run into the situation. I think Clinton operatives will be charged. I'm going to say that right now. I think Clinton operatives will be charged in this scheme criminally. And by then, you know, that's going to be the watershed moment for sure. If we don't see anything else, uh, that should be it. So that was an extremely long answer to a much more simple question. So process crime or something more sinister, do you think? Conspiracy. I, I would agree. It's either a conspiracy case that would get the media's attention and or a major government contract fraud case against Joffe and maybe some helpers of his. That would be a big deal. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like Rodney Joffe should be a huge indictment whenever that happens. Um, you know, a lot of people actually know him in the media, so we'll see, I guess. Um, you know, Glenn Simpson, somebody like that, and uh, you know, the Fusion GPS guys, Christopher Steele could potentially be indicted, especially with Danchenko already kind of under the, the thumb screws. I mean, any of those indictments, Christopher Steele being indicted, like uh, that, that should be a, a monumental news story. Um, but more and more, I mean, I, I hope we see documentaries. You know, I, we have some conservative media outlets out there, or at least some entities that pretend to be neutral. Where are their documentaries? I mean, one of the things that really ticked me off was like six or seven months ago, George Stephanopoulos of ABC News actually did a documentary on Christopher Steele. And it was, it was like a straight rehabilitative thing. And they presented him, you know, without scrutiny, didn't challenge his answers at all. And it was one of the most ridiculous things because we know, we've known for years now that this is a concocted story. This is a fake story. And there's a lot of questions. You know, you got to scrutinize these people. You get them in a chair and then you don't push back on any answers. And to give another documentary to supporting the narrative, you know, the Russiagate narrative, and there hasn't been one single documentary, there hasn't been anything like that on a national scale um, detailing the other side, which is just insane. <laughs> so, JH, what's up, man? Yeah, I guess uh, going forward for Durham, I guess, you know, something that's sort of been surprising to me is like all these people that were involved, you know, many of them have given testimony to Congress. And I know, you know, like perjury charges in congressional testimony are not something that has typically been done. It's sort of been left up to uh, Congress to deal with that. But, you know, in light of like Roger Stone, you know, being indicted and convicted for lying to Congress. It just seems like, you know, as Durham learns more and more about what happened, it seems like he'd have a gold mine 
of information these, that these people, you know, testified to Congress that, you know, I'm sure there's false statements in there and, you know, perjury all over the place. And I guess I'm just surprised that we haven't seen any of that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Durham wants to fill up his docket with process crimes and simple false statement cases when, you know, he's really trying to compile like a conspiracy case. Yeah. I mean, they aren't really process crimes. You know, it would be like if somebody lied to Durham, that would be a process crime. I suppose it's a crime in some sort of process, you know, but these were crimes that were committed basically to conceal the conspiracy. Yeah. So it's kind of like it, I'm impressed that Durham, you know, right off the bat, what Mueller did was he started, you know, uh, indicting people who lied to him, you know. So, I mean, yep. it's uh, that's been kind of impressive that that Durham isn't relying on cheap tricks like that, you know, but it, it's still, you know, it it just seems, you know, if he does go the conspiracy route, it seems like, you know, perjury to Congress, you know, in some of the like late 2017, 2018 testimony could be a way to go but i'm sure he's aware of that so i don't know <laughs> yeah i mean i think one of the articles i'm going to write for substack is kind of going through like sullivan and and john podesta and people like that where they said they had no knowledge of any of these operations and steel dossier or anything until after the campaign was over and you know they're they're portraying it as they hired perkins coy to do opposition research and then they had no knowledge, basically, after that. Like, they might have understood that Fusion GPS was contracted to assist with opposition research, but then they pretend like they knew nothing about Christopher Steele. And, you know, it's just not true. I mean, we, we got testimony this week that members of the campaign were briefed on allegations related to Alpha Bank. Now, it seems to be a safe assumption that they were also briefed on some of the, the Steele stuff. And I thought Robbie Mook, I mean, they went to Hillary Clinton and told her that they wanted to push a story into the media on this Trump alpha server. And Hillary Clinton personally approved that plan. So (laughs) the idea that they had no knowledge on the campaign of all this stuff going on, it just doesn't doesn't pass the test anymore. And Durham needs a, a pretty low threshold of evidence to be able to charge, you know, some of those lies like John Podesta, um, who was sitting next to Mark Elias, by the way, which is just totally ridiculous. Like Mark Elias is the one in all these meetings and in all these emails. And, you know, even if Podesta doesn't, even if Podesta was telling the truth, which I think is pretty clear, he's not like Elias sitting there. He knows every detail about what happened. So I don't know. I'll, I'm certainly going to take a look at the testimony of Elias as well. I, I just, yeah, I mean, I, I understand the point you're making, but we'll see, I guess. Um, Willie, what's up, man? Oh, hi. No, I just got one question for Ryan being in the court. Uh, sorry. Um, yeah, for sure. Is it, is it pronounced Perkins Coy or Cooey? Because I, I've never got around that. I, I've heard it's Cooey. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I just, I, I just wondered whether you'd heard some testimony and whether it's Coy or Cooey. And <laughs> I heard both. 
so. right okay right okay <laughs> no <laughs> yeah i i have no idea it's just uh been like for four or five years uh been trying to work out how to pronounce it and then i've got another question for king um so the jury they went to deliberations this afternoon um and they're being they're not sequestered over memorial weekend um king how do you think that's going to affect the verdict in the amber turd trial hopefully it won't uh I've seen juries take take a weekend off, never a long weekend off like this. Um, and oftentimes the judge will ask the jury uh, on like midday Friday, do uh, people want a weekend or would you rather spend some time on Saturday to liberate? And I'm going to give you Sunday off, but what about Saturday? And... Uh, uh, the jury kind of will let the judge know how they're going and ha- how it's going. So that wasn't done here. There was a hard stop by the court. So it's anybody's guess as to whether um, it's going to be make it more likely they'll reach a verdict, giving everybody, each of them, a three-day holiday to think about it on their own whether that's going to make them pretty much start over in the deliberation on Tuesday. Um, so we don't know. So, so the thing is, there's two big trials, which are also from allegations or something made six years ago. There's the Amber Heard and the or Donny Jep, Jep thing today and the Sussman, which they've the juries went off within an hour of each other today and they're, they're both being left over Memorial Weekend, um, which I I find odd. But I think it's three days. In, uh, if you go back six years ago, we didn't have this social media. We didn't have like a phone which uh, bleeps every time a Twitter, a tweet goes off or or a Facebook friend or, or something. So when I think the, the Memorial weekend is long, three days, and two, they're very, very high profile. And and I, I, I just can't understand, you know, if you went back to OJ Simpson and, well, I can't remember the exact year, but, but that sort of high, like level of, uh, high level of media, they sequestered the juries um, and are, are they going to are they going to be honest about not reading any media when they come back, um, or is Rodney Joffe going to be um, monitoring their DNS traffic? It, it, Joffe, I don't trust a bit, but monitoring the traffic, I'm not sure helps him. In any way, uh, there was a surprising lack of uh, press coverage and not very much social media coverage on this. 
Uh, so I, I sincerely doubt that anybody on the jury is going to be terribly influenced by media reports or even social media. Uh, let's see here. MB, what's up, man? What's up, Undead? Welcome back. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, naming my Substack. It was nice of you. <laughs> is that uh, is that the way the uh, the poll's going, dude? You crushing everybody. You're crushing the second best by forty points. That's fantastic. Sorry, my coffee's <laughs> gone. <laughs> well, that's a good deal. Um, yeah, I just was uh, wanted to jump in. Exactly, that was what I was uh, wanted to talk about real quick. Was uh, I was surprised that. A, there was so little media coverage. Which, well, I guess that's not really surprising, but it was pretty tepid as well. It wasn't really uh, – I, I didn't see as many of the missiles flying at the at the Durham uh, uh, probe than I, I expected given, you know, that the Hillary people are kind of in the crosshairs as much as they were in this trial. And uh, I, I'm just kind of guessing, but my take on that is maybe a lot of the media and a lot of the Dems are just like, you know what, Hillary, you're done. We We have no more use for you. And we didn't really like you that much anyway. So if uh, if uh, some of your people go down and you have a really bad stain on your reputation, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to die on this hill for you. So I hope that's what happens. And I hope that this comes out as kind of a, you know, if, if there's a conviction that there's a fair, okay, this, you know, Durham's onto something and uh, we have to let him go and, you know, carry on with it. Um, I don't have high hopes that that's going to happen, but I think there is some hope. Yeah, I think you have a good point there. And it kind of ties in with A.G. Barr in that article that was kind of floating around there. Um, you know, A.G. Barr kind of is, is assessing that the Biden administration, you know, they don't want to protect Hillary. Nobody wants their legacy to be tied to Hillary Clinton anymore. And the media has been in the bag for Hillary against Trump and, you know, promoting this Russiagate stuff for too long. I mean, multiple years of this, they're, you know, there has to be some fatigue there, and I don't. I don't think they want to carry water for them anymore. So, yeah, I, I agree with your assessment. If I may, um, I I followed the two New York Times reporters who live tweeted the trial, and they were to me surprisingly thorough and objective uh, for the most part. They, they, I didn't detect a huge amount of bias one way or the other. Uh, they were pretty, they played it straight. Uh, they, one, one thing made me chuckle. Uh, they were proud of the fact that of all the papers, New York Times was the one that uh, declined to run the headlines at the end of October that about the uh, Alpha Bank hoax. They uh, instead they ran with the story that the FBI so far hadn't found anything, and that and, and I think Charlie Savage was saying, you know, they uh, the, the prosecutor forgot to mention that, but basically holding his paper up as a model for catching on to the hoax. Yeah, I ca- I caught that same thing from Savage. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I 
little over the top, right? I mean, Eric Licklau was like the seminal character in this whole story. And um, obviously interacting and totally in the bag with Feud and GPS. And, you know, obviously he didn't run the story down because if he did, he would have known that the pings were faked. And, you know, despite the assertions made by the Clinton campaign, not all these cyber researchers he was being put in contact with were actually independent. And once you get to a qualified independent researcher, like they actually got to with Cryptia, they shoot it down immediately. I mean, it's amazing to me to see Rob Graham and Cryptia and then, you know, immediately at the FBI and immediately at the CIA, they shoot this stuff down immediately. They say, no, 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 like this is incomplete. It doesn't support the narrative. Uh, You know, one point that I thought keyed in on was this, this server in question was configured for outgoing only. So it couldn't receive the pings that were being sent from Alpha Bank and Spectrum Health. Like it's impossible that the pings exist, which is just amazing. So (laughs) you take that and it's like, how is Elgin Camp posting on Empty Wheels blog the other day, uh, like still championing this, this allegation? Like it's, it's, it's embarrassing at this point. So, uh, let's see here. Oops. Uh, Chuck, what's up, man? Hey, Chuck, you there? Uh, this is me, Vince. Hey, Vince, what's up, man? Hey, uh, number one, uh, thanks, guys, for uh, everything and uh, staying on it. And uh, just a – you're serving your country. So thank you for serving your country. Um, question I would have is – and I'm sorry to get down Speculation Street, but I guess I'm being a little bit lazy on this Friday. Um, Jaffe McCabe Comey, King, uh, question is for King and Undead percentage chance of indictments and timing that would be my question <laughs> uh man that's that's a tough road on speculation street they don't they don't keep it paved very often um joffy i would actually say 100 percent chance of indictment uh i don't timing is just a crazy hard question um I don't. I don't even know if he'll be indicted within the next year. It, it could be another year on Joffe. Um Andrew McCabe. I would say sixty percent chance of indictment. No idea on timing. Comey. I would say probably twenty percent chance of indictment and no idea on timing. So. Okay. Thanks. And um, I think you describe yourself as a crickety old lawyer. Uh, King, what, what do you uh, have to say on Speculation Street? And um, we all understand that you're speculating. Well, I have to pull out my dart board and darts and start tossing them. I don't know. I, uh, hard to say. Here, here's here's the way I look at it. You've got, I agree with Undead. I think uh, Jaffe and particularly his his involvement in in multi-million dollar government contracts and his misuse of data 
coming out of that exposes him massively to a uh, a major fraud uh, indictment concerning his uh, his uh, uh, misuse of government contracting powers and procurement. He so. I wouldn't say 100%, nothing's 100% in the law, so I'll put him at maybe 90%. As to the higher-ups at the FBI, uh, McCabe and Comey, I think you first have to begin with what are the chances that any conspiracy charge is brought against anybody inside the government? Uh and then the second question is, how far up would that go? Uh, on the first question, I've always been 50-50. I think there's a case there to be made, but it may not be politically palatable to the Attorney General, uh, and it may take more resources than Durham has. Uh, if he does bring it, let's say the... the it, it lands, the, the coin flip lands on the side of he's bringing a conspiracy. How high up does it go? Uh, I'd say minimum McCabe. I think it odds are very good that McCabe would be part of that conspiracy. Comey, not so much, but uh, not, not out of the realm of possibility. So, King, uh, thank you so much. Um, and, you know, speculating, um, I know it's something you don't like to do. Uh, I noticed the change, King, uh, about midweek uh, or maybe it was Wednesday or so when you started to talk about the different pathways that Jaffe was exploiting, right? Um, was my instinct correct that you kind of really uh, thought Jaffe was a lot more likely to get indicted when all that was revealed, and it also seems like kind of what you're alluding to is the biggest surfaced area is Jaffe. That's kind of really the next element, and then bridges will unfold from there. That's my question. Yes, that's that, that's my instinct talking, uh, uh, because the news about Jaffe misusing his uh, his CHS status to to sneak in basically corroboration for the uh, sketchy data that he gave through Sussman. Uh, that, that's a problem for him. I mean, you, Durham can't let that lie like that. He, he has to do something. Uh, and it's possible that, we're, that he had inside help as well. If he did, that's a conspiracy that could be brought, conspiracy case that could be brought. Uh, straight up, it's it's beyond the five-year statute of limitations uh, for anything except uh, major government fraud involving a, a government contract. So uh, the, there's there's a lot of facts relating to Dur to uh, Jaffe that, that Durham knows and we don't. So it, it 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 does put us into the realm of speculation. One one thing I want to chime in there with regards to Jaffe's continuing um exposure here is i would not be surprised to see him thrown to the wolves um and portrayed in the media as the bad actor that duped us all um 
you know, I said a couple months ago that I thought he was a useful idiot, and it'll be interesting to see what happens when he stops being useful to those people in power. Um, the facts probably support a lot of that, um, and I would expect to see the media sort of close ranks to make sure that it ends there as well. So that could be one aspect of how the Joffe story unfolds. The problem with that is that Joffe was doing it explicitly for the Clinton campaign. You know, he wasn't an independent operation at all. And, you know, you throw him to the wolves, you know, you're throwing the Clinton campaign overboard because, uh, as I understand it, Joffe was in contact with Jake Sullivan directly on the campaign. And it's just not something he would be tasked with to go out and do himself. Now, um, one avenue that I think is interesting is kind of hinted at at trial as well. You know, Joffe was a, a powerful executive at News Story, and obviously he had other contracts through his various businesses. But specifically, News Star lost half of their NOPAC revenue, which is like the number portability contract. And that, you know, as a billion dollar public company, to lose half your revenue is just like a death knell. I mean, you just can't do that. And presumably he had a lot of shares or obviously he had a lot of power at the company. But if he could help Hillary Clinton get into power in exchange for the Clinton administration reversing that ruling and awarding that contract a new star, that's a win-win right there. And I thought it was interesting because it wasn't really explored and it is pretty ancillary when they discussed the fees that new star paid to Perkins Coy. Now it's kind of like a, a round peg in a square hole because it, it didn't seem to fit in anywhere in the testimony, but they did introduce that into evidence. And I, you know, I, I struggle with the numbers. I don't have them handy here, but as I recall, it was like 694,000 in legal fees paid from new star to Perkins Coy in 2014, I think 694,000, something like that. And then it was like 1.1 million in 2015. And then it was like 1.8 million in 2016. And then in the, you know, 2017, I think it was like 2.3 million or something like that. So obviously Perkins Coy has a lot of interest in, in helping new stores as well. And I think that's kind of what he was hinting at. But, um, you know, that is also within speculation road. So it's really interesting. Um, Joffe is really kind of like the bellwether and really kind of like the focal point to see how these things unfold. It would be interesting to know what Joffe is currently doing now with his uh, financial assets or structures, because um, that might be an indicator towards what he's expecting. But guys, thanks for serving your country. I'll, I'll step back, let some other people chime in. And um, it's just... Uh, you know, you're doing a great service uh, to us all. Thank you. Thank you, Vince. I, I really appreciate that. I, I think that uh, there's more to that story with um, New Star losing its portability. And didn't Joffe and Sussman go to visit Baker on a different occasion to talk about that? Um, I, I don't think we know nearly enough about it, but I'm sure that there's some really juicy stuff in there. Yeah, and I, I think you're right about that. I think they did bring that to Sussman's attention. And and people forget sometimes Sussman was actually outside counsel for Newstar. So, um, yeah, it's well within the realm of possibility. There's some, some shady stuff going on with Newstar. And obviously, you know, I always, I always bring this one up because 
it's an absolutely insane story, but you know, the Vatican and a particular representative at the Vatican sent $2 million to new stars, Melbourne division. And I'm going to write an article this weekend about this, but that was within 2016, 2017. And the purpose for those transfers has been determined to be fraudulent, but we, we've never gotten more information about it. And I've, I pursued FOIAs in Australia for this and I, I haven't been successful for it, but that is going to be really, really interesting if that turns out to be related to Russiagate. To have transfers from the Vatican to New Star related to Russiagate. I, you can't, you know, if you were in Hollywood, you, you wouldn't even come up with that story. Um, but more and more, it, it does seem plausible that that might be connected. Hey, Ryan, I wanted to ask you another question, if I can. Sure. In regards to the runway, kind of in the backstory on Durham's investigation, where it goes from here. Sure. So I, I, you know, cards on the table. I'm just as excited about, about it as, as the rest of the crew here seems to think that this might be the watershed that kind of gets him some, some momentum. But, you know, Attorney General Barr's comments on the blaze the other night where he was talking about how um, uh, Durham was kind of hemmed in by COVID, could not go out and do a lot of investigative work and all that sort of stuff. I don't know if you, you saw the excerpts of that, but it's kind of interesting. That got me thinking. And if you really think about it, Durham didn't seem to be showing a whole lot of fruit. And we've all, all assumed that that's because he's close hold, but he wasn't showing any fruit until the alpha lawsuit started to go and depositions in that started to come out. So I wonder, and I guess my question is, to what extent do you think Durham's team is really uncovering and investigating stuff um, and what extent are they just kind of prosecuting what's fallen in their lap? Yeah, so this is a pretty important point because Empty Wheel has actually gotten this wrong a lot, and she's portrayed it incorrectly to a lot of her followers. But um, you know, Durham is not not really drafted off the Alpha Civil case too much. I think he was possibly hoping to to get a few more documents um, that he could have gotten out of the, the Alpha case. Um, you know, he might have desired for the Alpha Silva case to break down the, the privilege claims of Fusion GPS. That might have been something he was banking on a little bit. Um, I don't have any other excuse for why Durham didn't break down that privilege sooner himself. Um, but that, that might be possible. But as it relates to the Alpha claims as a whole, uh, there is a, an important distinction here. So the Alpha team learned of it uh, through the Daniel Jones deposition, which came in 2021, uh, I believe, but it was like much later in the case. And Durham knew about this, this Alpha stuff much sooner than that. So Elf, Durham didn't get this from the Alpha Silva case. Durham had this uh, towards the end of 2019 is what, where I would place it. Because we have emails from May and June of 2020 where they're referencing conversations going back several months at that time uh, where they're inquiring of David Dagan at Georgia Tech. And they're, you know, we have indications from Ron Joffe's filings where uh, he was reached out to you know, two years ago. So by early 2020, Durham was on this. And the Alpha Civil case was, was much later. So um, Durham was developing information by that time. He was a little bit slow with it. Um, you can tell that because um, somebody like Angelos Karamidas, who's at DARPA, who was at DARPA at the time, 
you know, Durham didn't reach out to him until February 2021, I believe, and um, didn't set up like a more formal uh, investigation until, uh, or, or more formal interview until August, I believe. So uh, Durham was a little bit slow on that, but uh, uh, yeah, I'll leave it there. Hey, J.S. Cook, what's up? Hi. Uh, hey, second. how's it going? Good. Uh, wait a second, stage fright. Um, oh, yeah. Um, Andy McCarthy, did, did, uh, did y'all see him today on the news? I, I did not. I saw that he had an interview. I didn't watch it. All right, so, so I, mean, I guess this goes to the to the uh, you know, long weekend discussion and the jury and their percolations. But, but uh, and he was being asked about Sussman and taking a stand and, he's, and not taking a stand. And he, he said uh, Sussman didn't really take the stand because um, defense was doing such a good job and he had it covered. And then he kind of proceeded to lay out this rationale as to why um, Sussman would be acquitted, and it it goes to the fact that it was all that his visit to to Baker was in service to this wider interest on 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 Russiagate. It was a wink wink thing that that the that his visit wasn't material. I, I may you know I'm paraphrasing because everybody knew he worked for DNC and DCCC and his Hillary ties. Everybody knew that, and they chose to use the fact that he withheld that relationship as cover. And so, so he, he's, he's sort of laying out this rationale for, for you know, some some woman whose daughter is on a crew team, you know, to, to use that, that says basically it can't, we can't commit a quick Sussman because he was really just playing his, his expected role. And so the lie was not, not a lie and it wasn't material because anyway, that's, that, that was the, the logic. It was as twisted as it is. It's, yep. it's from Andy McCarthy, and you know, here's a recipe for disaster. Although I, you know, I, I can, I would, I wouldn't. If it, if it goes that way, it'd be neat to see, you know, Jerry standing on the front steps saying, "Sussman's, we couldn't convict him of this because he was part of, of a, you know, a big play, you know, by the seventh floor." So that would, you know. Yep. Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah. I mean. I want to be careful because there, there's people in our corner that are, are friends with McCarthy, but um, he has been kind of wrong on this for a long time now. And, you know, before Sussman was indicted, before Dan Schenkel was indicted, he thought Durham was done. And that's what he was writing for months was Durham's wrapping up, Durham's done, uh, Durham will have like a, a report. And then we got indictments. And then he's like, you know, Sussman will be acquitted, Sussman will be acquitted, and yada, yada. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what he's up to anymore. Um, I don't see 
an acquittal really in the cards. Um, there can be, be a hung jury for sure. And, and I'm not going to underplay like the impact of a DC jury. You don't know. I, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't latch on to any of those points really too, too much. And I, I don't think Durham's close to being done at all. Uh, Durham's going to do a lot more here. And, um, you know, McCarthy's certainly not, not alone in being a little bit off base on this one, but, uh, you know, there'll be more of that. Yeah. Thanks. On debt, on debt and King, I could ask one, one last question. As far as, uh, the Sussman trial is concerned, would you, um, I'm asking both of you, would you say Durham's objective was primary objective was one, uh, use as Trojan horse to expand and gather data for the wider conspiracy and two, uh, a guilty, um, verdict. Um, how do you see that? Uh, how would you see the order of, uh, his priority or objectives in this trial? Well, whenever you indict somebody uh, for a felony like this one, you're trying to get a conviction. That's your number one responsibility, your number one goal. Uh, he had a secondary aim here. Uh, he, I think he believed that to get a conviction in D.C., he needed to tell a bigger story than just a single false statement. And he was successful for the most part. The judge cut <clears throat> cut him back on it somewhat, uh, which was not a surprise to me. But he got a lot in on this uh, single 1001 charge. So I think he had those two goals in mind, and he did a very good job of um, succeeding in both. Uh, he I'm not saying that he's going to get his conviction, uh, but uh, he certainly has a solid, he has a better chance than Andy McCarthy would suggest. So Durham would not have brought this charge if he didn't feel that he could get uh, the conviction. In other words, Durham would not have brought this forward uh, just to unravel it more. He He wouldn't have done it for that. He would not. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let's see who else we have here. J.S. Cook, did you get a chance to answer uh, ask your question? I, I didn't. I don't recall. Um, let's see here. Yeah, sorry. I, I got my question answered. And, okay. and I wasn't trying to disparage Andy McCarthy. I, he's kind of like Jekyll and Hyde to me. Uh, <laughs> I, I love him and, and hate him, you know, and it just kind of blows like the wind. It, but it, I'm, glad it, he's, it, I'm glad it, he's around. I'm glad he's it, around. He's good for laughs. I, I watch Andy and read what he writes, and um, he's a pretty smart lawyer and very well respected. And where, he, where I think he missed something in this one uh, was the Jaffe aspect. Uh, the prosecution had two, not one, but two mic drop incidents in this trial. First came when they uh, put into evidence the Staples uh, receipt 
for the thumb drives that's supplied by Jaffe. The, the data that went on the drives came from Jaffe. Uh, the second mic drop incident came in rebuttal uh, when the prosecution lawyer, at to end his whole closing argument, he reminded the jury that Jaffe won put the data on the thumb drive and then put his uh, confidential human source hat on and went to an FBI agent, not his handler, and gave that agent more data to, and uh, to, in effect, make it appear that the data is coming from two different independent sources unconnected to each other. Uh, and he's trying to corroborate that that was powerful in my mind. And, and Andy didn't touch on that. And not just data. It was, it was like, it was like two IP addresses, wasn't it? And, yes. and, and, and what, what one's were in they? Russia, one's in yeah. Russia, uh, but I don't think that came out. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that was ever discussed. Hey, oh, I got a question for King about that. What was the defense thinking, putting Grasso on the stand in the first place? What were they hoping to get out of him? I thought the prosecution would have put him on the stand. I'm with you. I'm surprised the prosecution didn't put him on the stand um, or didn't put Joffe's handler on the stand uh, or both. The I don't know what they were thinking, but it, it kind of killed half their case, the, the defense. Yeah, unless they were in some way trying to throw Joffe under the bus, which they were happy to do, I, it's just inexplicable because, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think you explained it perfectly that, wow, that was just a – it was that much more powerful that it was a defense witness that is just blowing up their entire narrative. Definitely. Jay, what's up? Yeah, I was going to say that it uh... – you really saw the uh, the defense push to attack the FBI about the time that they, they put Grasso on the stand. So maybe they thought his value was in uh, undermining and impeaching, you know, the FBI at that point. And it sort of backfired on them because <laughs> because the prosecution got a lot out of it, too. So, it, yeah. And I guess I was just going to say the, uh, you know, one of the things this trial did was it, it kind of expose the playbook on how this whole operation worked between, you know, Perkins Cooey, um, Fusion GPS, and Jaffe to a certain extent. And, you know, if, if you look at any event that happened, you know, that involved Perkins Cooey and Sussman or Elias and involved, you know, any sort of digital information, I think it's a fair bet to say that, you know, these three parties were involved and they're running the same playbook. And it really makes you you turn your eyes towards CrowdStrike and the DNC hack, you know, because they're all there. So it, it just, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, let's see here. Damien, what's up? Hey, man, thanks for all your coverage. I really appreciate it. Um, I don't mean to rain. I don't want to rain on the parade. I, I think this has been really... Uh, interesting trial i've been following uh robert govea's uh, <laughs> uh youtube channel like a maniac um 
But here's the thing, I just to, as a little reminder, to me, um, everything hinges on October 5th because that's at the point where the cover-up really happened, in my estimation, right? They, they figured out that this is all false. Basically, all it was was people looking up things, no transactions ever executed. That's, it's, it's, I work in tech, and it, it was just baffling to me that this even made it this far. But, you know, that's at the point where you have, uh, you have bad actors, you know, feeding information into the FBI, and then the FBI internally figures out this is fake, and then what do they do? They continue this charade. So that's really bad. But just as a little reminder and not to, not to kind of, I, I'm not a, I don't hate the FBI, but they've been up to chicanery for decades. And, you know, think about this, uh, whoever went to trial for any of the shenanigans going all the way back to Waco or Ruby Ridge or any of the other stuff. So I, I, I hate to be a cynic, but I don't know. I, I'm not real convinced that anything's going to happen at all with any real convictions. I think they'll keep playing this out, but I'm not sure where it's going. But thanks. Thanks again for all your work. This has been an outstanding coverage on this. Well, thank you, Damien. I appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> you leave it up to the federal government and they, they find themselves innocent all the time. It's, it's amazing. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously we saw it today at, or yesterday FBI is not going to be looked at any further for their dropping the ball on the, the rape of the U S gymnast, which is just disgusting. Um, that being another case where the FBI came into information, uh, about abuse and they didn't, they didn't do anything about it. So I take your point. I, I think there are some indications that we could see some additional indictments at the FBI. Uh, nothing's, nothing's for sure. And, um, We'll just have to see. Uh, let's see here. Hey, I, I had I had just one quick question. Um, sure. That the uh, when 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 Elias is sitting there, were you there? With, you weren't there for his testimony, were you? No, you I wasn't. Ah, okay. Uh, so, so okay. The 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 FBI witnesses when. When they're sitting there in the stand and they they can't remember shit, mm-hmm. how is that playing with the jury? Is it is it, and how are they projecting the fact that they they have their memory is zilch? <laughs> you know, when they've got when they you know compared to say Baker, who's who's sort of the benchmark rememberer of the trial, you know. Yeah, I mean it doesn't play well with the with the jury. I can tell you that, and and. I think the defense did a really effective job of putting the FBI agents on trial and ripping them apart in cross-examination, but it ultimately didn't win them a whole lot of points on the central issue of the case, which is um, that Sussman lied, and I I think they dropped the ball on continuing to assert that he didn't lie because it is clear that he did. And um, instead of making their entire case on materiality, they poked and prodded at some of these FBI agents sort of alluding to, well, nothing changed because, you know, this FBI agent didn't know this or, or something like that. That's not the standard. The standard is not a decision actually changed uh, due to the, the false statement, making it material. That's not the standard. The standard is the false statement could change a decision. That's the threshold. And, you know, the, the decision of a reasonable 
you know, FBI person, which, you know, the people that are on the witness stand or in the leadership of the FBI are probably not the reasonable, you know, people. I like, they're not the objective standard anymore. Um, so I think the defense kind of dropped the ball on that. And I was, I was just amazed, just astounded at the defense that they actually put on, which seemed entirely about the March 2017 meeting where Andrew McKay briefed it and a few people took notes to the fact that uh, Sussman had worked you know, on behalf of the DNC or that he brought these allegations on behalf of an unnamed client because that's just irrelevant. It's totally irrelevant. And they made that the, the cornerstone of their entire defense, which was just incredible. Like that is the worst thing you could do because you, you don't know what information was developed over those six months. And, you know, even them, they brought up witnesses to testify about the March, 2017 meeting and they couldn't remember it, remember anything. So at the end of the day, you have Baker on the stand saying he's 100% confident that Sussman told that lie to him as he walked in the door and you have the text message from the night prior where Sussman said, I'm coming not on behalf of any client. And then you have the statements given to, you know, Anderson and Priestap where they wrote it down on that day. Uh, Sussman said he's not representing a client. So those are four pieces of, of really damning evidence. And then you have Baker himself saying, I wouldn't have even taken the meeting. If he said he was coming on behalf of the DNC, I wouldn't have taken the meeting. So that's materiality right there. Uh, and you don't even have to go further than that. But if you wanted to, I mean, you can dig into the testimony of people like Allison Sands and Ryan Gaynor and some of these others. And they're like, yeah, if I'd have known this was political, I would have totally changed the way I did this or that. Um, so I think the prosecution did everything they, they could. Uh, I think they met every standard that is necessary under the rule of law. And I would expect, you know, I would lean towards a conviction on this. King, I don't know if you have any thoughts to share, but... No, I agree with everything you said. Was, was uh, Sego asked about... You know, she, she had attended the meetings uh, with Perkins Coy and Cooey and uh, Fusion GPS. And was she asked at all about, about uh, the, the circular reporting strategy, whether that was whether that was discussed around her in her, in her vicinity or that, that, uh, that bit that Elias and Mook so, so strongly avoided or denied, you know, that there was any effort or intent to, to leverage FBI investigations in service to, uh, the, 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 the lie the you know, the big Russia conspiracy lie was Laura, was Sego not ever asked about that? That's a great question. And, you know, I'd have to review it. I, I don't think she was asked anything about their, their intentions or strategy. Um, she established that there, she was part of a meeting where Sussman, Elias, and Joffe uh, met and they discussed the alpha allegations. But, you know, they didn't follow up. They didn't dig into the substance of the conversation at all, which I thought was really surprising given that she was immunized. Um, but I, I don't recall... Um, why were Berkowitz? Why did? Why was Berkowitz chasing that point? So you know that there. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they they wanted they wanted to they wanted to show that Sussman was acting independent of any direction from Elias, and you know Elias said, "I don't want anybody talking to the FBI." <laughs> well, which which we know, gosh, I mean, he's one he's he's one that couldn't remember any part, and I, I bet he was smug and and smirky when he was when he was pulling up vacuums. But uh, that's the big that's sort of the big elephant in the room, you know, yeah. in, in my in my head is. Fusion GPS, obviously through ore and these and, and these other channels, steel wanted to wanted uh, wanted to to fertilize the FBI seventh floor with this mm-hmm. narrative, and Sussman, they say, was part of that. Berkowitz wants to wants to wants to point out that he wasn't part of that, and that seems like there's some big lying going on. Oh, definitely. You know, yeah, big, and I- big. Those are big lies. <laughs> Those are big lies, and and you know, and so that's that's intent, you know, to lie to that extent. When there's yeah. got to be when there's got to be witnesses, there's got to be emails, and I don't know, you know, just it's a hail mary. Yeah, well, it, it felt like a hail mary for the for them to represent to the court that the Clinton campaign wouldn't have wanted them to bring these allegations to the FBI. It's just ridiculous because. It, you know, Alliance and Sussman were working on behalf of the campaign. They were briefing this to campaign officials, and I just don't believe it. And I, I don't think the jury would believe it at all. Um, and I think the the prosecution made that a point in their um, discussions today, or their their closing arguments today, in that if they were concerned about national security, if Joffe and these others involved were concerned about national security, why did they go to the media with it first? I mean, they have months, they have weeks and months of these communications going back and forth with reporters where they're, you know, building up allegations and they're sending white papers back and forth. And, you know, they're having all these meetings from, you know, July 29th onward. You know, why didn't they go to the FBI in July? Why did they wait till September uh, if they were so concerned about national security? And the, the only answer is, because they wanted to give it to the FBI and they wanted to, to have that report out there that the, the FBI you know, found it credible or the FBI was investigating it. And it, it was fully believable. You know, the truth is always going to be more compelling than a lie or a concocted story. And the truth is they thought Lickblau would put it in the New York Times, you know, the paper out there, uh, screaming credibility, especially with Lickblau on, on the byline with it, and that would blow up into the massive story just a couple of days before the election. And that would be enough. And that's what they thought would happen, I think. So, yeah, The other thing with Elias is they are pushing the Steele dossier to the FBI, you know, six ways from Sunday. So that was an obvious lie that, of course, they are willing to go to the FBI because they were taking the Steele dossier to the FBI. And I... Wish some, that I don't know if that would have opened the door that they could have brought in some of the uh, Steele dossier stuff to ask him, hey, okay, let's talk about how little that you trust the FBI. Um, I don't know if the judge would have allowed it or if that would have been possible, but it did seem like a good opportunity to really impeach Elias, who was would clearly lying. Yeah, well, I had that thought during Mook's testimony because Mook testified something to the effect of, well, we didn't know if these claims were authentic or, or um you know, or whatever, we were just going to give it to this reporter to have them run it down, right? And then you compare that to what they did with the Steele dossier, where 
they're just pushing out just smear campaign. Like Mook was just looking totally ridiculous up there. And I, I you know, I wish there was more of a, an expansive questioning, you know, allowed by the judge. I understand it's just a false statement case, but like that would have been like the perfect question is, wait a minute, you're saying you want the reporter to just run this down because you don't have the expertise and you don't want to put forward, put out like uh, uncorroborated information or whatever. Um, Cause he was asked about like their tweets about it as, as you know, when it came out in the slate article, they considered it like uh, run down or whatever, like corroborated. And that's why they tweeted out in late October, but it's like, no, no, no. Like you knew it was garbage. Come on. I mean, you're pushing the steel dossier and, and you knew exactly what was going on. One thing I wish the prosecution had done when Mook, Mook got on the stand and tried to lie like that <clears throat> or at least shade the truth and um, in kind of an obvious way. It, I would have played Mook the video of him um, in that press conference July 24, 2016, where he says uh, in a press conference, our experts, we have experts who have told us that there's something going on between Trump and Russia. And we're going to be looking at that. Uh, I would ask him who his experts are. And do they have anything to do with this case? Uh, because it kind of shows the origin. He had he had the origin of the whole narrative right there before the first meeting that came into evidence involving the lawyers um, <coughs> the last week of July. And he, he's very positive in that uh, video. And I don't know what he would have said, because at that point, it's clear they are on a opposition research track involving Trump and Russia, involving the use of experts who are trying to piece it together. And so the first thing that pops up are first things are Jaffe and Steele, both of whom managed to get put into the FBI. So I, to me, that that's a story that didn't get told. Yeah, I completely agree. It's good analysis as usual. Um, let's see here. <laughs> uh, getting kind of late. So um, I will take one or two more questions. I do want to wrap this up for the next couple of minutes and um, hopefully everybody has some plans, something enjoyable to do. Hopefully everybody has a three-day weekend here. And, um, you know, obviously we'll pick this up for sure. I mean, if we get a verdict on Monday, we're for sure having a space to chat on Monday night. Um, we'll just play that play that out. I, I don't think I'll put it on the schedule or anything, but um, for sure. If there's a verdict on – or excuse me, on Tuesday, uh, we will have a space to chat on Tuesday. So let me see here. trying to add a few people there's a few technical issues that are yeah it says that i'm sorry to those that are requesting to speak or um seem to be having some technical issues not not adding you so i'm gonna go ahead and end it here guys i really appreciate everybody hopping on i uh 
Friday night. I know everybody's kind of busy, but uh, wanted to put this out there just in case there was a verdict today, mostly. So, um, appreciate everybody coming on. I appreciate our speakers; they're outstanding as usual. King, it's always really, really nice to have you here on on these chats, answering all the legal questions. Hopefully, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot more trials. So, uh, <laughs> hopefully, you know, we got a couple more years of this. So we'll, we'll try to pace ourselves, and we'll go ahead and end this one tonight. So. I hope everybody has a good night and a good weekend, and I will see you next week. All right, guys. See you.